Tonight's scripture reading is 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live to the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached, even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. The end of all things is at hand, Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks, as one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves, as one who serves by strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Good evening. My name is Jason, staff pastor here at Grace Downtown, and we're so glad that you're worshiping with us tonight. As you saw when you came in, we have a little bit of a different after-service activity tonight as we are going to be serving in a service project. It's a great time of year to meet the physical needs of people, and we believe here at Grace that because we know good news— that we both demonstrate and declare that good news to a world that is in need of good news. So tonight we're going to have an opportunity to demonstrate the good news as we meet the physical needs of people by packing prepackaged meals. So we're going to do that right after the service. I'll give you some instructions at the end of the service. If you registered in advance, thank you. That helped in our planning. If you do not, did not, we want to encourage you to stick around anyway. Um, Everybody's going to go through a line to sign in their name, and we need as many people as we can. Many hands make light light work and all of that. So uh, anyone can stick around, so make plans now to stick around after the service, and we are going to prepackage thousands of meals right here. um, And we're just going to do it, see how many meals we can get done in an hour. So great opportunity to serve here uh, right after the service. If you've ever overindulged at Thanksgiving, you know how I feel tonight as we tackle this text. I have overindulged by planning too many verses for us to cover here tonight. So I want to give that qualifier at the very beginning. We are covering too much scripture here tonight, but there's a couple reasons I chose to do that. One, I think that there's a natural flow here that talks about how we should think, particularly about suffering, and then how we should act as the people of God, as a biblical community. Also, the last few verses we're going to cover, we're going to cover extensively in the spring as we learn what our spiritual gifts are and we use those in the life of the church. So we're going to spend more time on those, so I'm not going to be able to fully do those justice. Also, I will give you my guarantee that we're not going to go long. We're just going to cover a couple of different topics as we jump in to the scripture tonight. Would you pray with me as we get started? Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can hear from you. 
Thank you that you have something to say to us tonight. God, thank you that you have not left us here just in silence and in chaos. But God, you have spoken. You have spoken into our lives. You have spoken into the chaos. You have spoken into the darkness. And God, we want to see your light that we just sang about tonight. God, bring light where there is darkness. Bring hope where there is defeat. Bring joy where there is sorrow. God, we pray that you would speak tonight. Take my humble words and use them for something that is bigger than any of us. God, prepare us. Prepare our hands and our feet and our minds to serve you even here tonight and as we go into this week. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. To coin a phrase that James K. Smith, a Christian philosopher, uses, we are more than just brains on a stick. We live in and worship in and struggle in a body of flesh. But what we think about is very important. What we think about determines a lot about our lives. And the Bible has something to say about what we think about. In today's passage, and really in this whole book, Peter has been trying to tell us that how we think is very important. It's very important to our worship. It's very important to our hope, which is the theme of 1 Peter. How do we have a living hope? It's very important to think rightly about what Jesus has done and what he's called us to. It's important that we think rightly as we go through times and seasons and we live in a world of suffering. Tonight, this passage that we're taking a look at in 1 Peter chapter 4 tells us how Christ thought, particularly about suffering, what Christ has done for us, how we should think, and then what we should do as well. So first, we're going to see how Christ thought. Please open with me, if you haven't already, to 1 Peter chapter 4. The, most of the passages are not going to be up on the screen, so I encourage you to open up a Bible app, a website, a physical copy of the Bible, and read along with me in 1 Peter chapter 4, and we'll read the first two verses. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So, as to live for the rest of time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. So Peter is telling us there's a certain way that we should think, and there's a certain way that Christ thought as well. And he uses this term, arm yourselves, with the same thinking as Christ. First, I want to tackle that because it places an importance on what we're talking about here tonight. So, Pastors can be known to over-war metaphor everything, but sometimes the Bible uses a war metaphor, and it's important for us to see why it's using a war metaphor. This term, arm yourselves, is a military term. It means go to battle or go to war with the proper armament, the proper weapons to fight a fight. And it's important before you go to a fight to know what kind of fight that you're going to. Before a soldier goes into battle, they need to know what kind of battle they are going into, what kind of clothes to wear, what weapons to take, what kind of defense they need, how long they're going to be gone. These are important things to know. Peter here says, arm yourselves, prepare yourselves with a certain way of thinking. And he says this because he is writing to a group of people that has suffered, is suffering, and will suffer. 
Remember, this whole book is addressed to a group of people called the elect exiles. They're elect. They're chosen by God. They know the love of God. They are the church of God. They are followers of Jesus. But they are also exiles. They don't live in a country that is their own, either by choice or by force. They have been pushed out of the places they are from. So they are elect exiles. So they have suffered. Now, we looked at last week, throughout almost every chapter in 1 Peter, all but the first chapter, it talks about how they are slandered, maligned, marginalized. People are speaking against them, so they're currently suffering. And then we also looked at last week how they are about to suffer. Because about five years after 1 Peter is written and read by these believers— The temple in Jerusalem is burnt down. And a few years later, they're persecuted for not worshiping Caesar as Lord. And then a few years later, Christians are fed to lions. So he says, arm yourselves because they have suffered. They are suffering and they will suffer. There's an important word in this for us tonight because we have suffered. Some of us are suffering right now. And all of us will suffer to some degree in the future. Peter says, arm yourselves with a certain way of thinking. And the way of thinking they are to arm themselves with is the thinking that Christ had. So what thinking did Christ have? Christ suffered in the flesh. That's what he says here in verse 1. Since, therefore, Christ suffered in the flesh. Christ came and he suffered in the flesh. Christ, fully God fully man. God himself came in the flesh and he dwelt among his people and he suffered at the hands of those he came to save. And he thought a certain way about that suffering. He thought a certain way about that suffering in that he trusted himself to the heavenly father, even as he suffered, because he knew that through that suffering, God had a greater good, not only for him, but all of humanity. For us who sit here today and know good news, who package meals to be good news to others, that's what Christ's suffering was accomplishing. Christ knew that he must suffer, and he knew that that's the only way the Father's purposes could be accomplished. So we are to arm ourselves with the same way of thinking that Christ had. So how do we do that? First, we know that Christ suffered And so we can know that we will suffer as well. Because if Jesus was perfect, he always did the will of the Father. It means that he always loved his neighbor as himself. He was always hospitable. He was always serving others. He was always lowering himself to obey the Father and serve mankind. He perfectly did what 1 Peter is telling the church to do, and they didn't perfectly do, and we don't perfectly do either. Yet, he suffered. Christ came, and if anyone deserves to be worshipped, it was him. If anyone deserves to be king, it was him. Yet, he suffered at the hands of those he came to serve. So if Christ suffered, we need to arm ourselves with the same way of thinking by knowing we will suffer too. Next week, we'll look at how we actually share in Christ's suffering, and we'll get deeper into this topic of suffering Next week. Next, we can know that suffering is part of our sanctification. Suffering is part of our sanctification. Often when we suffer, we think, what did I do wrong? What did I do 
to deserve this. We may say we don't believe in karma, but when we suffer, it's kind of our fallback. What did I do wrong? I thought I did everything right. I thought I did what the Lord asked me to do. I thought I was serving him, but now I'm suffering. Maybe I didn't do things quite right. Well, we need to arm ourselves with a way of thinking that says that's not how it works. And we can know that's not how it works because Jesus suffered. The one who always did the will of the Father. He did nothing to deserve his suffering. So when we suffer, we can know it's part of our sanctification. How is it part of our sanctification? Three quick ways, and then we're going to dive into this with the whole sermon next week. Three ways that suffering helps our sanctification. First, it helps us to be holy. It helps us to be holy. And one of the primary ways it does that is it helps us not be so reliant on our emotions. Because... Friends, when we suffer, especially when we're going through an acute season of suffering or a chronic level of suffering that is just over and over and again, day after day, week after week, month after month, even year after year, we don't have a lot of times where we're feeling happy-go-lucky or cheery. Suffering helps us to not be so reliant on our emotions in order to worship and obey God. Secondly, suffering is part of our sanctification because it helps us kill sin. Look back with me at 1 Peter chapter 1. He writes this very explicitly how this works. 1 Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action. Again, preparing our minds to think a certain way, and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. That passage right there can be seen as a companion passage to what we're looking at here tonight. Peter is saying the same thing again. He's saying, prepare your minds for action. Be sober-minded. Set your hope fully on the grace that is to come. And as you do that, that helps you be obedient children. It helps you in your sanctification. It helps you not cling to your former passions, which we're going to talk about in just a moment as we go through chapter 4. The third way that suffering is part of our sanctification is that it makes us cling to the Father. It makes us cling to the Father. No matter how much we try to not cling to our worldly things, as much as we try not to cling to our good emotions or our physical well-being or our ability to produce goods and services for society, when those things are taken away, it's really hard to feel right. Like we're doing anything, like we're being effective It makes us cling to the Father for our acceptance, for our joy, for our comfort. When everything else is taken away, all that's left is to cling to our Heavenly Father. Again, more on that next week. But this is the kind of thinking that Christ had towards suffering. And this is the kind of thinking that Peter is telling us to arm ourselves with, prepare ourselves with as we go into the battle. Then in verse 3, he tells us a little bit about the battle. Look with me at 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 3. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. 
living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. So he's referring to their past. He's telling them, you had a time when you did things that you are now seeing the world do. You're seeing your friends, your family, those in your, the marketplace, those you live around. They're just following the flesh. They're following their passions. They're following their lusts, which he's talked about previously in 1 Peter. That's what you used to do. Now you're following Jesus. Now you're an elect exile. Now you've set your hope fully in a living hope in Jesus. You're not following the passions of your flesh, but your friends still are. Your friends still are. And now, because you're not participating in their foolishness, they're maligning you. They're ostracizing you. They're gossiping about you. They're leaving you out and then making fun of you for not participating in what they are doing. This is some of the, sl- the slander, the maligning that's happened to them. This is the suffering that they are presently going through that First Peter has been talking about in the whole book. You used to be one way. You followed passions and idolatries and the flesh, but now you're not that way anymore. Again, not only are they facing suffering now, but they're about to face even worse. And he is telling them, you need to arm yourself with right thinking. You need to be prepared for the battle that you're going through now, day in and day out, and the battle that is to come. And then he uses this phrase in verse 6, for this is why the gospel is preached even to those who are now dead. There's a couple of different things that this could mean. Uh, If we connect it back to our passage last week where Jesus preached to the spirits who were in prison, he could be talking about that. He could be referring back to that depending on what of those interpretations you believe of the three I presented last week. He might be talking about that. Or it could be far more simple. He could be saying that some received the gospel and now they're dead. It could be either way. But just like last week, when we laid out that there's three options for the whole Jesus preached to spirits who are in prison thing, there were three options to that with the same punchline. Same thing here. The same thing here. Here, he is trying to tell us that we can arm ourselves with the right kind of thinking and we can be prepared for the suffering, but in the end, we may still be put to death at the hands of angry people, or eventually one day we're going to die an old man or an old woman. He's pointing us back here in the previous verses. He said that you will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Ultimately, no matter what we think he's totally saying with this passage, Peter wants them to think about the fact that their life will not go on forever. That's part of how he wants them to arm their minds with the thinking. He wants them to obey God, to follow him, and to arm themselves with the right kind of thinking about the suffering, their suffering right here, right now. No matter what may come. In verse 7, 
he goes back to this theme. He says, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. What does he mean by the end of all things is at hand? This is pretty common language for the Bible writers. They call it the time of the Lord or the end of all things. And the writers and authors of the New Testament, this is how they spoke about things. Well, did they mean it was the end of history? Well, apparently not, because we're here 2,000 years later. So when they talk about the Lord's day or the Lord being at hand or the end being at hand, what they mean is that everything has happened to fulfill the Old Testament so that we would now have a Messiah. We would now have a Savior. We would now have our way through Jesus to be with God forever. Everything that's needed to happen has happened. The kingdom has been inaugurated in Jesus. That's why Peter and the other New Testament authors speak this way. He says, the end of all things is at hand. We've seen the Messiah come. We've seen him die. We've seen him rise again. We've seen him ascend to sit at the right hand of the Father. We are living in the end times. It's a reality for every believer that would come after Jesus's ascension. That's what he's speaking of. And then he says, therefore, because of that, be sober-minded. This is ironic, especially if you have lived in the church culture for more than like a minute, because the ironic thing here is that when people, especially preachers on TV or people that sell lots of books, when they talk about end times, they say lots of crazy things that make everyone go crazy. There's not a lot of sober-mindedness going on. There's lots of charts and math and numerology and all these guesses and weird things that we read about in the book of Revelation. And every time people talk about the end times, even when I say the end times, if you grew up in the church culture like I did, and if you watch TV way too later than you should have at night, you hear the end of all things or end times and you're like, And it's something you're just like, I don't even want to, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Most of us don't read Revelation. Most of us don't dig into what all the things mean. It's something that we just would rather like, I I don't want to think about that. Jesus wins. I know Jesus wins. And I I don't know what else is going to happen. He's telling them the end of all things is at at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded. It's just the opposite of the way that the modern church and most believers have dealt with the fact that the end of all things is at hand. But he wants us to be self-controlled and he wants us to be sober-minded and he wants us to live our life in light of the end. This is very hard to do, particularly if you are young. And a lot of us in this room, I'll include myself, I guess. (laughs) A lot of us are young and we tend not to think this way. On one hand, life moves pretty fast, but on another hand, we're like, I got time. I got time. But we start to hit milestones in life. Start to show us that maybe life is a little shorter than we think. And Peter's saying that's part of being self-controlled and sober-minded and arming yourself with the right kind of thinking, remembering that one day 
Christ will judge the living and the dead. And then the end of all things has already been inaugurated. And Christ could come back and set up the new heaven and the earth, new earth any day. This is the way we're supposed to think about things. And it's for the sake of our prayers. Interesting that he should throw in this for the sake of our prayers. Why does he say this? There's a number of things he could mean, but one thing I think he definitely means is if we don't arm ourselves with the right kind of thinking, it hinders our prayers. What we are thinking about, what we are dwelling on, what we are meditating on impacts our prayers and our prayer life impacts what we are meditating on. Have you ever gone to pray and gotten distracted and you forget to pray? (laughs) It's a rhetorical question. It happens most of the time, right? We have to have a certain way of thinking. We have to arm ourselves. We have to be self-controlled. We have to be sober-minded for the sake of our prayers that we will have an active prayer life where we are talking to the Heavenly Father. Okay, that's part one of this sermon. Part two is Peter telling us, what does this look like? What does it look like when a group of people arm themselves with the right kind of thinking? Look with me at verse 8. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Okay, above all, of utmost importance, is that you would love one another. He's about to give them other instructions. He's given them previous instructions. But he says, above all, love one another. And then he says, love covers over a multitude of sins. What does he mean by this? That love covers over a multitude of sins. He is certainly speaking of God's love for us, but here specifically, he is talking about our love for one another. And the fact of the matter is, when we think about self-sacrificial, Christ-honoring, Christ-following love, it really does cover over a multitude of sins. Have you ever been upset with someone and then they come to you and they apologize and there's confession and there's repentance and there's reconnection and then you're like, I don't even remember what the thing was. I don't even remember what we were fighting about. It's because love covers over a multitude of sins. Have you ever uh, known someone, worked with someone, lived in the same house as someone, been a friend of someone that occasionally says things to offend you or occasionally doesn't do what they say they're going to do, but they're very quick to own up to it. They're very quick to love. They're very quick to self-sacrifice. They're very quick to lay down their rights for the sake of you. It's very quick to overcome those things because love covers a multitude of sin because repentance and self-sacrifice leads to peace in our relationships. In Colossians 1, 19 through 20, Paul writes, for in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, meaning Jesus. All the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Because of Christ's ultimate love and us knowing that love and then extending that love to others, it covers over a multitude of sins. Christ is reconciling all things, all relationships, all earth, all chaos under his 
feet. It's a mega theme in First Peter that Christ is subjecting all things under his feet, that he sits at the right hand of the Father. So above all, keep on loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. He's saying you have a living hope, so extend that living hope and that love to one another. Verse 9, very practically, what does this look like? Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Very practical. Show hospitality to one another. This literally means welcome strangers into your home. This was a very important instruction for the people that are reading this letter. You know why? They know a lot of strangers. They know a lot of strangers, meaning fellow believers. If they're all elect exiles, a lot of them are not from the same place. So they're alien to one another. They're strangers to one another. And also, if they're exiles, they're living among a group of people that is not their original people group. It's very important that they be hospitable. Also, in five years, when Nero burns down the temple in Jerusalem, it's going to be really important that they're hospitable. Their place of worship is gone. The new place of worship is in homes, especially as close as you get to Jerusalem. Showing hospitality to one another without grumbling is going to be essential for the church of God. And yet, through the divine inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit is telling us here today to be the people of God. We need to show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Why does he put this phrase, without grumbling? Because hospitality costs something, doesn't it? You either have to clean the house or people see the house in the current state that it is in. Either way, it costs you something. Hospitality shows who you really are. It welcomes people into an intimate part of your life. And he's saying, do that without grumbling or complaining. Verse 10. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks the oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. So he says, you each have a gift and use that gift. He uses a word here as good stewards of God's varied grace. God's varied grace. Peter drops this little theological nugget in the middle of this instruction that we should use our gifts to serve one another. And it's one of the most profound statements in the whole New Testament. There are varied graces of God. That's really good news, that there are varied graces of God. Because I don't just need grace at the end of my life when I stand before my Savior. I need grace now, and I need grace for lots of stuff. God has varied grace for us, and we're to be stewards of that varied grace. You know another reason why it's so important that there's varied graces for us? Because in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 6, it uses this word various for the first time. It says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Various trials? Varied graces. Very good news. We have various trials, and that word various means manifold. Keeps unfolding. 
Don't you know what this is like? This is our world. We have manifold trials. They keep unfolding. And Peter says there's varied graces for that. And that we're to be good stewards of that various grace. And we're supposed to use our gifts to serve one another. Part of you having a living hope and part of you overcoming trials is serving others as they go through trials and as they need a living hope. That's what he's talking about here. So a summary of these three one another's that we've seen in these three verses. Keep loving one another, show hospitality to one another, and serve one another. And how does this section in in verse 11 we do these things in order that in everything god may be glorified through jesus christ to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever amen this is the kind of life that brings glory and honor to our savior so what are the implications of what we have learned here tonight first when you suffer look to christ when you suffer Look to Christ. You have either already had seasons in your life or you will have seasons in your life where the only sense you can make of your suffering and the world around you is to look to Christ and see that he suffered first and that he did everything right. He always did the will of the Father, yet he ended up on a cross anyway. We can look to Christ and see how he suffered and we can arm ourselves with that way of thinking. That's the second part. Be aware of your thoughts. The first thing we need to do to arm our thoughts, to be sober-minded, to set our hope fully in Christ is just to be aware of what we're thinking about. Be aware of what we're thinking about. And then this gives us an opportunity to pray about what we're thinking about. A key for me to unlocking just even more prayer in my life has been turning the distractions into prayers. Often when I'm sitting down and I'm trying to pray or I've set aside time to pray or I'm trying to grab a few moments to pray, I'm distracted by things and sometimes that's the Spirit's way of saying, hey, pray about that. Don't over-spiritualize it. Don't over-plan it. Pray for the things that pop into your head. Maybe that thing popped into your head for a reason. Maybe you're thinking about that thing because you're supposed to pray about that thing. Be aware of what you're thinking about and turn it into prayer. We've been told in 1 Peter, we need to prepare our minds for action. Be sober-minded. Set our hope fully. In 1 Peter 2, 19, for this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. This is how we are aware of what we're thinking about, especially as we suffer. Third, we look to the end. We look to the end. We remember that the end of all things is at hand and the kingdom has come and is coming And one day, we and everyone we know, and every one of the 8 billion, did you hear that this week? There are now 8 billion people in the world, and every one of them will stand before a righteous judge and give an account for if their sins have been bought and paid for by Jesus. 
And three billion of them don't have access to the gospel in their language. And just as one of my kids said this week when I gave that statistic, one of my kids said, we've got work to do. We need to look to the end. We need to know that our time is short. We have work to do. And he will judge the living and the dead. We do that by receiving and using the gifts that God has given you. First, we need to receive that varied grace. We need to receive that grace. Because if we don't have grace, we don't have gifts. We don't have anything to offer. We don't have good news, so we know and believe good news. So first we receive good news. Then after we receive those gifts, we then know what our gifts are. He gives instructions. He says, if you serve, do it with the strength God provides. If you speak the words of God, speak the words of God. He's telling them, well, you know your gifts and use them. Our problem is we don't know our gifts often. We need to know our gifts. And then when we know our gifts, we need to use them. We often neglect the gifts, the varied graces that God has given us. And we don't steward the gifts God has given us in the church because we think that, well, I'm just an ear. I'm not that important. I'm just the spleen. I'm just the toe. I'm not that important. But God has work for each part of the body to do. This is the way of thinking that we need to arm ourselves with to set our hope fully in the one who has saved us. Would you pray with me to that end? Heavenly Father, thank you for speaking tonight. We pray that you would continue to speak to us through your word and your spirit and your people. God, give us strength for our hands as we work hard in order to serve others. God, we pray pray as each one receives the meals that will go out from here. We pray that they would uh, do the work that you have set out for them to do, that they would feed hungry bodies, they would give strength to weak hands, and ultimately uh, that people would receive good news, that they would see what they need in you, Jesus. And God, we pray that you would bless each meal as it goes out, strengthen our hands and feet for the work that you called us to do. Father, I pray that we would be a church that sets our hope fully on the grace that has been given us, the grace that we have for today, the grace that will be revealed in the future when we stand before a righteous judge. Thank you, Jesus, that when we stand before you, we can point to you and your work on the cross. Thank you, Jesus, that you are the lion and the lamb. Thank you, Jesus, that one day, Some from every tribe, tongue, nation, and people will worship you on the throne that you deserve. And God, your word says in Revelation that the seas will be still like glass that day because you have brought everything under your feet. You have brought all chaos into order. God, we worship you for who you are and all you've done. Thank you that we can know good news through the work of Christ on the cross. Thank you that the ultimate act of love has already been done for us. We pray that we would set our hope fully on that, what Christ has done. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.